Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Episode 25, I'm here with my man, Yashar. What would this be called? Do you think it's Israel versus Palestine, or do you think it's Israel versus Hamas? That's a very difficult question, yeah. because Israel is going to say it's Israel versus Hamas. Right. Palestinians are going to say it's Israel versus Palestine. But the arguments are present on both sides. Right, right, right. Where Israel says that, look, Hamas attacked us, they're a terrorist group, we're trying to attack them. Palestinians are saying, well, you're not attacking them, you're indiscriminately <coughs> killing children, women, civilians. Yeah, everyone's seen the videos. There's, on both sides, you see the pictures in Israel of the yeah. burnt, charred bodies. You see the video in Palestine of the dad running with his little daughter. Yeah. It's, it's horrific yeah. what is happening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the VOV podcast, Voices of Vic. Episode 25, I'm here with my man, Yashar. What's going on? What's going on? Yashar, how's the, how's the last name pronounced? Dodd. Dodd. Yeah. That's what I thought. I, was, I didn't want to butcher it. Yeah. I, I tend used to, to get a lot of, uh, there, was, there was a lot of jokes back home. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to ask people the pronunciation beforehand, but it's a good, good way to start, just to ask Yeah, it sounds name. very similar to dad, right? Yeah. A yeah. lot of people call me dad. 100%. <laughs> it's, it's not a good, not a, <laughs> How do you not take a good that? first impression. Nope. I, don't, I mean, I had a lot of nicknames. I call, like, people used to call me Dadi. Yeah. People <laughs> used to call me Dadissimo. It was, a, it was a whole thing. That's funny. It was a whole thing, yeah. I think people will be interested in knowing the origin of your accent during this episode. Yeah. So, I'm from the... Well, okay. So, I studied in the UK for five, five years. Um... And then before that, two years. So it was, there was a break in the middle when I went back to the UK for five years to do my high school, um, which is where the, the English part comes from. But everywhere else, I was at international schools um, around the world. Um, and so that was where I get my American Canadian accent from. And I'm also Canadian. Where so would you, like, what country would you call home if you had to choose? Oh, that's a tough one. I think the thing is with me is home's always been changing. Got it. It's kind of one of those dynamic things that it's, it's never set. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think at the moment, UK is home. Yeah. But it could very well change because there were points in my life where I called Pakistan my home and there were points in my life where I called Hong Kong my home. And yeah. So it's, it's always... What's the reason? Why do you move around? Is it work? It's parents? just my, my dad's work. Yeah. yeah. He works in a bank, so he's just kind of been shifting around throughout his career. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of moves. Would you want to have like that kind of lifestyle like growing up that was your childhood does that attract you for like the rest of your life or are you just trying to find a place to chill and just settle in i mean i don't know to be honest sure. like it's one of those things that i've grown up um with my dad constantly moving yeah and so i think somewhere down there i'm the same where i i don't like i can't sit in one spot for too long yeah but I do think that I do like stability yeah. um, to a certain extent. And I do like that I spent five years in the UK and I am now spending at least four years in, in Canada and in Toronto. Uh, maybe I'll get tired of it and we'll, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, I think I am getting tired of Toronto slowly. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, that's fair. yeah, but um, I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. What is yeah. like, if you had to choose whether it's a city or a a culture that's like the most opposite, like a place that you've lived in that's the most opposite from Toronto? Because this is basically all I know. I've only lived in Canada. Oh, it has to be Tokyo. Tokyo. It has to be Japan. Why? Japan's just, okay, look, I, I love Japan. I loved Japan when I was there. I was very small and I still remember it, which I don't know, people always are like, how did you remember when yeah, you were four yeah. years old? But I still remember it. And my mom always describes that and it's an amazing place. 
but it's just really strange. With like with reference to where we live right now, with reference to everywhere else I've lived, yeah. Tokyo is just complete opposite. Like it's not very diverse, is it? No, I think also it was worse back when um, we were living there because we were yeah. living there back in 2007 ish, 2008, yeah. and that was when. And we're Muslim, so we eat halal food, which means it has to be slaughtered in a particular fashion, yeah. and we don't eat pork, Got it. and we don't drink alcohol. And so in Japan, pork and alcohol are rampant everywhere. Got it. And yeah. language is a massive problem. Yeah, true, so true. <laughs> I was talking. Was, who was I talking? I was talking to Chloe the other day. It's one of Chris's friends about um, just Chinese, and apparently there's like nine different tones that you need to learn to speak the language. And it's like, I don't yeah. know, well, like Chinese and probably Japanese is probably similar. I don't know how anyone would pick that up unless you were born and raised in that country. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I lived in Hong Kong for four years and I knew a decent amount of Mandarin, but as soon as I left, gone. Yeah, yeah. Like, I could not remember any of it. And it's easy, like, because I, obviously English is my first language, but I also am fluent in French because I only did French right. school growing up. Yeah. But it's still the same alphabet. And even yeah, if yeah, I were yeah. to learn Spanish, which is my dad's language, yeah. same alphabet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To learn a completely new way of writing. And these, I yeah. still don't understand what she was talking about when she says tones. Yeah. Because you need to learn all the different tones. I thought that it was like one specific But you know, it's, it's interesting because when people grow up learning a language, it's so different. Like, yeah. So I, my first language was never English. It was, it was Pashto, which is, so my, my mom's from the north of Pakistan, which is very close to Afghanistan. Okay. And there's um, a certain ethnicity over there. You, yeah, we can call it ethnicity, I think. It's, we're called Pratans. Okay. Um, and it's basically the same tribe of people uh, in, in the southern, southern part of Afghanistan and the northern part of Pakistan. Yeah. Um, and so my mom's from there, so we have a completely different language from the rest of Pakistan, the rest of India. It's interesting. Um, and I, that was the first language I knew. My mom just spoke to me in Pashto. And I walked into school on the first day, like, screaming in Pashto for my mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people were like, what language are you speaking? Yeah. It's, this is insane. Yeah. Uh, and then I learned English within the week. But because I learned, because I only spoke, spake, I can't speak. <laughs> I only spoke Pashto um, for the first two years of my life, first yeah. two, three years of my life, um, no matter how much English I learned, I only needed a week to get back into my Pashto. Like, I can still speak fluently with my mom all the time. That's good. Um, so, yeah, languages are just weird. I'll, I learned, I tried learning Spanish for two years. I was shit at it. Yeah. I was <laughs> That's so fair. bad. I, I tried to grind the Duolingo, too. I, I really, it's a different sort of pressure when you can't speak with half of your family. Like, yeah. they get on the FaceTime, and you just need to, like, smile and do your best yeah. to, like, use the few words you do know. Yeah. So I feel like I kind of have a responsibility to learn the language. Yeah. It's just like it's, it's but difficult. It's hard. It's hard. It's and difficult. I see this with my like my brother. And this is the crazy thing is because I learned Pashto first because he wasn't around. So my mom would only speak to me in Pashto. But then when I went to school and then learned English, I started speaking English. So I was speaking to my brother in English. So he never really spoke Pashto. Got he it. knew English first before Pashto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he, he, he struggles, like, learning it now. And to me, it's, like, so natural. Yeah, yeah. And I've never struggled with it because I, it was just the first thing that I learned, whereas he was speaking English much sooner than I was. 100%. And for him to go back and learn it was, like, so hard. It's hard, yeah. you got to do it as young as possible. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone knows that. Um, sometimes, like, if my dad's sleeping, he'll have, he'll, like, sleep talk in Spanish. 
Right. Even though he only talks to all of us in English. Yeah. He'll sleep, his sleep talking is in Spanish. There has That's to be some sort of... That's happened to me as well. <laughs> yeah. There has to be some sort of like... Do you think that there's a base language? Like, do you think that anyone can truly be fully, fully bilingual in the sense that both like two languages are the equivalent... I guess they take up the same sort of storage yeah. in someone's brain. Or do you think that like, yeah. like when I, I, I speak know. French, am I translating it into English in my brain? I don't know how I, that works. I, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to talk to a neuroscientist. For sure. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I probably. have no idea. I'm a cellular so, cell and biology, right? <laughs> I don't know anything about the brain. Um, yeah. But I would, I'd, imagine, I'd imagine that um, like it's very complicated. I know. Right? Yeah. It's one of those things that I think your brain has the capacity to switch in states. It's... it's Sometimes I'll be translating into English and sometimes I'll be translating into into the opposite and sometimes I won't be translating at all. It's yeah, just gonna yeah. be natural. And I think your brain is so complicated and it does things so efficient. It's the same thing as like vision, right? Yeah. Like your your eyes, the way it projects the image onto the back of your, your retina is inverted. Right. And the brain then flips it around. It's and weird. when you do when you the like scientists have put goggles on people, right, which invert their vision yeah and if they keep it on for long enough your brain's gonna switch it back over right so then when you take the glasses off you're looking at everything upside down so <laughs> it's one of those things that you're and it's sub so subconscious and it's your brain yeah, doesn't have the capacity to like like you can't understand it so, so weird it's yeah. so weird How, what do you think about like the idea of having one language for the world oof practicality wise it seems great but i think it would take away culture which is i don't think is ever a good thing yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing is 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 we get culture and we get and me being someone who's lived in so many different places, like I know how much of an influence language has on culture, on society, and the way people will interact with each other. Like just like you said, tonation, like just the way people speak has a massive influence on their language and yeah. the way they interact with each other. So as a result, you take you you turn things into English and like or one particular language and it takes away an entire level to a culture. Like I, I see it all the time when I, when I watch, like look at subtitles to Pakistani dramas or Pakistani like movies or anything and they're yeah. speaking in Urdu and you're like, this translation makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. Like it's the direct opposite of what they're trying to say. They're yeah. not even grasping what they're trying to get at here. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's one of those things that te technically English has become at least for the last, because of colonialism, for the last 50-odd years, yeah. if not more, 100-odd years, you've, English has been like the unanimous like language mostly yeah. of the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think that's going to necessarily change too much in our lifetime. Right. But I do think that um, if we get rid of languages as a whole, you're going to be left with a massive problem. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Uh, so that's, yeah, there's clearly, I think everyone is aware that there would be negatives to that something i was talking about with a friend months ago it was in the summer yeah i think that this is just a complete side topic but i think that racism could be solved i think the majority of racism comes from a language barrier which okay like let's just take the canadian context for example a lot of immigrants from the middle east and i went to high school where a lot of my friends were all middle eastern yeah so it's great when you're young, you can get along with everyone, but the older generations, I think that that, not only obviously the cultural barrier, but I think that the fact that you can't even communicate your ideas to each other is a huge, a huge barrier. Yeah. I wonder if, if everyone was fluent 
in the same language, whether it's you learn, I don't want to mispronounce your language. What is ba- it? Pashto. Pashto. Yeah, Pashto or do, yeah. Whether you learn that or whether you learn English, yeah. I think that the ability to actually be able to transmit your ideas exactly how you mean them into someone else's brain is, yeah. is very important. And I, and I think you're right. Like, in, inherently, language barriers create fear. Any kind of barrier creates fear. Like right. The, the, the way unknown. Our, yeah, the unknown. The, the way that since we're children, if you think about what is fear, it's literally what we don't know. Why are we scared of scary things? Why are we scared of, of spiders or, or snakes? Why are you scared of the dark? Because you can't you see. Because you can't see anything, can't right? See. When you remove a sense or you remove a, a layer of, of knowledge to any particular entity, you're yeah. going to instill fear to it. And when you can't understand the other party, and that I think you see that a lot with the whole, when you look back at the early 2000s, uh, post 9/11, um, yeah. the entire propaganda that was taking place, where you know, um, and it was up to Trump, right, about how the Arab culture is so different from American culture, right, and how, and it it comes from a place of you know the the language is so different, the right. language sounds so different, it sounds scary, like all the villains in like 1990s, 1980s, like films are gonna be like. Arab, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, and it's and, and and it was the same thing that happened, you know, with um, a lot of other races and a lot of different cultures. Yeah. Right? Anything that's unfamiliar, yeah, is going to be something different, for sure, and scary, for sure. Um, and it's it's definitely a global issue too. I think that I don't know if this is true for other countries. I just know that here we can get caught up with a lot of the racial divides, whether ethnic divides, but this stuff is happening all over the world, yeah. which is. It's, it's just interesting to see how one, like the human race, yeah. talking about races, but I mean like the human race can, all of us can have that same struggle. Like it's, yeah. wha- how is it natural? It's just unfamiliar. It's because you don't know. Yeah. You know. And that's, and that's where divide and that's where, as you said, racism and that's where Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and everything comes into place. Because when you put up barriers in place, and language being one of those barriers inherently will result in those things, right? For sure. Um, and I think it's an unfortunate reality and it's inevitable in certain cases. Yeah. But there are things we can do to, to limit those. I think um, certain places make it more susceptible to happening. Yeah. Um, there's going to be, and, and I think the more isolated a certain community is over time, the more likely it is for someone to be scared by something different, right? Yeah. And you see that a lot in rural America, you see it a lot in rural Canada, right. where you get a population of people that looks different or appears different or sounds different, and immediately people go, oh, they're foreign, they're bad, we don't want them here. Right. And that's a natural, instinctive human response. Yeah, yeah. And the way that you deal with that is by normalizing it. Right. And that's what's happened in big cities, right? yeah. in urban centers. Um, you see you know, diversity and, and inclusion being so much higher because there's just a more, a greater array of people from different places. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's completely true. And I am very grateful to have the, the upbringing that I've had just in terms of, I understand very well the importance of tradition and upholding a, a country's culture. But then I yeah. also understand how you can't be closed off to, to the outside world. Like you can't, once again, just knowing, like I go to my friend's houses whose one friend, his parents are from Mauritius, which yeah. is a little island off the coast of Madagascar, yeah, yeah, yeah. middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and you just see how 
like the culture is there's I don't know how anyone could sense harm because yeah. it, they're they're there's good people all over the world. Everyone's, everyone's, I think instinctively, naturally, the majority of people are good. Yeah. So to think that we, there's a natural threat detection that goes on when you encounter someone that you're not familiar with yeah. is, is weird. And, um, and how do you, how do you balance that? Cause like, yeah, I think it is important once again to uphold culture. Cause that is a problem. Like if, if Canada has its culture, but then, it's good to have other cultures come in and we learn about it. Yeah. But how do you keep a country's culture while also learning and appreciating others? Yeah, it's a difficult question, right? And I think, and you know, if you look back at times like colonial England and what they did with a, a vast majority of the world is they, in, they inflicted their culture yeah. upon other c countries, right? right? And that's where you have the opposite happening, where it's gone too far. Right. But I do, I do think that Something like that, um, at least in places like Canada and America, it's not going to happen, yeah. right? You're not going to get um, an immigrant or a refugee population of any kind, really, that um, will cause the Canadian culture to somehow go away or cause an American culture to go away. I think even if you look at places like New York City, which has been diverse for the best part of 100 years, right? Yeah. When originally Italian immigrants came um, and, and worked on the docks of, of Brooklyn. Um, over years and years, New York City has still, ha it's still an American city. Yeah. It's still very much an American culture, but I think it's developed its own culture. And I think also the concept that a country's culture will always stay the same is also something that needs to go away because the reality is that countries are constantly gonna change, people are constantly gonna change, cultures are gonna change. Um, and there's going to be parts of certain cultures that are great. There's going to be parts of other cultures that are horrible. Right. And what you're trying to get at is when you're introducing diversity and you're introducing new cultures, you're trying to create a society in which you take all the amazing parts of all the different cultures and you're trying to sideline the parts that are a little bit sketchy and a little bit, you know, you don't want to talk, do very much with them. So yeah. I think that's what makes, when we look at cities like Toronto and cities like um, New York, that's what makes them great diverse cities because mm -hmm. you, you're, what you're trying to do is take you know, a country's great food or a country's great dance or a country's great X, Y, Z, etc. Yeah, yeah. And then take that on board and create your own environment, your new culture, your hybrid culture as well. It's interesting. Yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah. It makes sense to me. Um, let's talk about some more extracurricular stuff. Okay. A lot of... So, so we just, that's a good conversation about culture. And I can tell that you've lived in many different countries with the, the IQ of that <laughs> conversation, but, um, you're the, the co-president of squash team. Squash club. Yes. Squash club. Yes. Why is there a club and a team? Okay. So the varsity team, um, think about it as like skill-based matchmaking in gaming. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's just one of those things where the varsity team, it, you have to be at a certain level to get into the team. Which you're on. I just made the team. It just took a while. It. Just, it took a while. And Congratulations. I'm, thank you for that. But I'm, I have a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. I, some, of the, some of the guys on the team are crazy. That's like, fair. Um, and I think the gap between like the sixth or sixth seed on the team and me is like, like these guys have been playing <laughs> every single day of their life. How do you start into squash? 
It doesn't, it's like, it's not a very famous sport. All right, we're back. Right, we're back. So camera's cut out, but we're back. Squash team. Right, yes. Y- your rise, your ultimate rise My to ultimate fame. Rise to fame. <laughs> what tier? What tier is that? Because there's different tiers of uh, varsity sports, right? It's tier two. Tier I two. I think there's only two tiers, right? I thought there was three. Maybe there's three. Because my friend who's um, wrestling, apparently wrestling's three. Interesting. I, I, it's two or three. Okay. It's not going to be one. Got it. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, no, we have to, we have to fund everything ourselves and Got it's it. all alumni based. I think rowing's also two. Got it. Um, yeah. Which I didn't know about until very recently, actually. That rowing was that, two? No, no, that, that there was a tier system. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I it does make sense. It does make sense now that I think about it. When you compare the basketball team to the palm team. Yeah. You have to be a little bit of different investment there. Yeah, like, exactly. Think, right? Or even, even the fencing team compared to, like, yeah, the football team or yeah. the soccer team. Hockey. Right? Hockey, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but anyway, sorry. So how, how's your progression been? Like, what's the, what's the latest? Okay, well, so I tried out for varsity last year. Yeah. I didn't make it because the team was insane. And, and keep in mind, these guys have played every single day since the age of 12. Like, most of these guys have gone through the junior leagues i think our seed one could very easily play for canada um at one point we had mike McHugh, who has paid play for canada got it um which means that he if he was still training could represent canada at the olympics like sorry did you say seed one yeah so like the top seed like how so does that how, like what is like i don't know anything about so sports. there's so gen- generally how it works is that there's 12 people on the team okay and for every tournament seven people are going to play and then it's going to be one reserve uh, and so, generally, the top seed, so the, the rank, the number one player, the best is player play yeah. the n- number one player of the other team or the other school or Got it. whatever, uh, and then it's going to go all the way down to seed seven. So seed seven versus seed seven, seed six versus seed, seed six, yeah. and that's just to make sure it's fair, so that you're not like going seed one against seed seven, right? right, like right you right. don't, you, you want it to be like good games. How do you? So wait, does like the coach choose the seed? Yeah, so it's gonna it's gonna be coaches, but generally speaking, it's just gonna be based on matches. Like you can okay, you okay. play matches internally. And how do you team. win, like um, the, the whole game? So in squash, it's very similar to tennis, but also the the direct opposite. It's like a juxtaposition. It's very okay. it's interesting. So it's you the ball should not touch the ground twice. Okay. So it's one bounce before it hits the ground. Yeah. Um, there's a line. So it's essentially a box. It's just a room, yep. and basically one person hits the ball, and the concept is you want to keep hitting against the wall right. until one person no longer can hit it before the first bounce. Got it. Um, that's a very generic, yeah, broadscape yeah, yeah. kind of idea. But I mean, like, if you're playing on teams yeah. where it's, like, one versus one, two versus two, yeah. like, like does one – if one beats one, is that more valuable than two beating two? No, so it's all equally weighted, which is why they put the seeds in order. Interesting. Um, so if generally whoever, whichever team wins the most games out of seven is yeah. going to win. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I understand. So like, what if you're strategic, uh, I guess that doesn't make any sense. I was going to say if you just paired like your best guy, but you called him seed seven, but like that does, that does happen, but yeah. it's illegal. Oh, okay. Like, okay. It's, <laughs> Got it's it. like, and it'll also be like the tournament, uh, organizers will very easily be able to tell who's a seed True. one, who's a True. seed seven. And like, yeah, I guess they have your, your record or you're like your match yeah record, and right? and yeah so we have club locker which is a squash specific thing and Got basically it. it's dependent on your on your rankings who you've been playing and it basically like anybody above a five or is very 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 good and anybody above a six is insane yeah like the top players in canada are going to be like a seven so then now that you're on this team like how is your 
training and like practice improved like not only with the skill of the sport but like do you like do you work out do you how do, how do you train for squash oh um well we have four times a week training Okay. Generally speaking, we have practice from seven, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. every day. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you get a lot of squash-specific drills. A lot of it is just drilling. Um, because it's a room, people often think that it's very, like, it's an easy sport because right, right. the ball is just going to come within, like, five paces of, of the middle of the court. But yeah. the, the reality is, yes, if you sprint five paces, yeah, you'll get there really fast. But then you have a wall in front of you. Yeah. So <laughs> you can't sprint in a squash court because you're going to run into the walls. Right. And then if you run into a wall, you're never going to get to the other side of the court in right. time to actually hit the ball back. So you get specific movement drills. You need to be really precise in the way you move and in, in how low you get because essentially it's a game of scooping the ball up, whereas yeah. tennis is a game of hitting the ball from over, over the net because yeah, you're trying yeah, to get yeah. the ball to dip over the net, whereas right. in squash you're trying to pick the ball up and chip it up almost Got it. and slice the ball a lot. So it's a it's a lot of movement practice. There's something in squash called ghosting, okay. which I did yesterday, and I <laughs> could barely walk after. And it's essentially just like extreme movement drills. Yeah, um, got my ass whooped yesterday by these guys. <laughs> I was in so much pain. Yeah, I my, my heart rate has never gone that high up. I, I was on the verge of vomiting. It was so bad. That's good though. It's good that you're <laughs> surrounded by these higher skill guys. It's the only way you yeah, improve, it's right? In, it's insane. Like. These guys were not even breaking a sweat, and I was there like yeah, seeing yeah. stars. And yeah. I was like, "Dude, how are you doing this?" So, it's it's insanely good cardiovascularly for your for your for your fitness. That's good. Um, but yeah, and, uh, squ and surprisingly, squash, you need a lot of solo practice. Yeah. So a lot of the practice you do is just sitting in a court by yourself and just hitting the ball straight, and you'll do it for hours. Yeah. And just like I, my dad growing up used to tell me that when he used to be training and he used to be uh, playing back home and he used to be with his coach. Um, he just, he, his coach said, 100 shots. I want 100, 100 shots. shots to the back of the court. And I'm not letting you leave until it's finished. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And not only, obviously, that would apply to squash, but no matter what goal you want to accomplish, the best way and the fastest way, I think, to get to that point is to surround yourself with people with the same goal. Yeah. So I started working out because all the people on my floor in Margad went to the gym. Uh, was I going to be the only one who didn't go to the gym? I got to start going now if yeah. all these guys are going, right? Because yeah. they're going to be strong. I can't be surrounded with strong people and be weak. Yeah. I think that's just natural for anything you want. If you want to yeah. get better grades, you find people who are just obsessed with studying and, and yeah. just mastering the, whatever, the content, the of, content the of the courses. Yeah. So, and I think that's where the club comes in place. So that's why okay, we go yeah, back yeah. to, so talk back about to that. Where, where we were differentiating between the, the team itself and, and the club. And the Did you start it? No. No. The club has been around for a long time. Okay, okay. Um, and it's been growing to a point where now we have like 300 plus, 350 members. Wow. And it's it's a surprisingly big club. We have like a exec team of like seven people, but it's open to everybody. Anybody can come, play whenever they want. And it's just a, a social place for people to like work on their squash. And yeah. again, back to that same thing about having the same idea or the same goal, uh, just to get better at their squash, to have fun and and it's just a really great environment so it's two things that are very different related to the same sport yeah yeah, yeah. um the varsity sessions are are like super intense super concentrated like yeah. it's it's like hardcore business and then you it's nice to have the club on the side as well which is a really great social aspect. a little bit yeah a little bit more yeah. social right yeah that's cool how do people join that well we have a whatsapp group we have an instagram you literally just use the sign up link and you join and then you come on thursdays and you 
have a hit with us. Perfect. And then usually we'll do some events, we'll organize things. But generally, I, th I like to think of the squash club as less of a club and more of a, of a society. Like it's a, yeah, yeah. it's a place where basically you're going to be just surrounded by a bunch of friends immediately when you walk in. Like, um, and, the, and the really cool thing about squash club, which I don't think many clubs at UFT has, is the age gap. In like the, the people like there's people who go to squash club and they'll be like like well into their careers if not going out of their careers almost retiring and they're just old old alumni or professors or yeah like um people who teach at, at, at different faculties and then you'll get people like myself who are undergrads and you'll get people who are doctors and people pr practicing at um at the medical school and so you'll get like this huge variety of people who are um like part of this club shout out to my co-presidents, Leo and like, and Rishi and, and Sean. Um, Sean is in, in Rotman. Leo is, is a gynecologist. Okay, nice. <laughs> and Rishi is a computer engineer. Yeah. So uh, one's doing a master's, one's doing an MD, PhD, one's doing an undergrad. So there you go. Who's undergrad? Sean. Sean. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure. I know a Rishi. I wasn't know if that was the same one, but no. Yeah. Uh, no, that's awesome. That's really cool. So is that like, if you're, if you're not at school, can we assume you're at squash? usually yes okay cool usually, yeah. awesome <laughs> yeah my friends used to make a lot of fun of me because i always they used to be like you sure where are you at and i was just like squash and yeah. at some points they were just like okay he's at squash like it's just it's just automatic and my friends will i have way too much energy sometimes like I'll, Fair. it goes to a point where i get a buildup of energy and then i'll get frustrated because i can't dispense it yeah and it happens to me a lot during midterms like it happened to me this last week because i had like three midterms yeah um and i hadn't played squash in like five five days um and i just needed to get it out absolutely and last night i was like on the verge of fainting i was like this is where i need to be <laughs> yeah all the time because otherwise i don't have like i just have way too much energy the same thing with the gym i i can physically i've gone to the point where i can physically feel myself becoming weaker after yeah. like three or four days of not going yeah and it's terrible yeah it's awful so like yeah that, like i feel like anyone who wants to start going to the gym that would be the dream state any i mean any time yeah that you truly want to achieve anything. That's another thing you could talk about is do it so much that you feel the effects of not doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. hundred percent. So it's hundred percent. It's cool. Become reliant on it. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Just, but yeah, no, just not drugs. Don't yeah. do drugs. Kids. Not drugs. <laughs> Clearly not drugs. This is a sport <laughs> and working out. We're all about health here. Yeah. So that's good. Um, dive into more serious topics. Yes. I wanted to ask you about the biggest world news at the moment that right. I've seen a lot, a lot of talk about right. uh, just from students alone. I did a poll. I should get the, the numbers on that. You know what? Before we dive in, I'm going to go get my phone, just check the numbers on this poll I did. Yeah. I'll turn these off so they have a bit of time to cool, and then we'll jump into it because it Sounds is an good. interesting yeah. stat I wanted yeah. to tell you. Cool. Okay, so I asked on the VOV story. Yes. Would you consider politics to be a common topic of conversation amongst university students? Okay. Out of 127 votes, 100, sorry, 127 votes, 40 say no, 87 say yes. So that's a 70% to 30% split. Okay. Do you think about politics often? Do you talk about it with people often? Do you, like, in this community in particular? Um, it depends on the topic. Yeah. And it depends who I'm talking to. Um, I think, generally speaking, when it comes to politics specifically, I don't talk to many people about it unless they're my close friends. Yeah. Um, 
And I think that's about it when it comes to U of T. I think generally speaking, um, when it comes to that poll, I think personally I would disagree. I think that, and I think that's that's with context that I'm from the UK and I've lived in the UK. And in the UK, we have a massive culture of debate, of open conversation, of open opinion. I do think that at U of T specifically, um, people are very afraid of confrontation. Uh, people are very afraid of openly voicing their opinions um, and that leading to some kind of a disagreement. And I think that becomes problematic. Because why, do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think people are afraid? I think, I think it's partially because of cancel culture. Yeah. I do think that, um, and, and keep in mind that I don't think that every aspect of cancel culture is a bad thing. Like having, an, um, having a community or society in which people are holding you accountable for what you say is really, really important. Um, and I think that's something that has not been in place for a decent proportion of our history, yeah. um, where people have done things, said things, and openly kind of, you know, even to the point where people have like been racist on, on tel television, and to, to an extent it happens even now. But I do think that um, making sure that people are aware of what they're saying in public um, and in society is really important. Um, and making sure people are informed about what they're saying and inform and making informed opinions is really important. Um, but like everything, there's a spectrum. There's, you know, there's not ever one side to anything. And I, and I say this when I'm talking about any political conversation, any idea, any, um, any debate of any kind, any argument of any kind, I think there's always two sides to everything. And I think when it comes to, and it's something that comes from my whole cellular molecular biology thing. It's like whenever you talk about biology, and I went to a professor once, and he, I was like, you know, why can't you give me a straight answer to this? And he was like, everything's on a continuum. Like everything is a gradient of some kind. And it applies to everything in life. There's no hard and fast answer to life and societies don't work like computers. Nothing is binary. Yeah. Um, and I think the same applies to when we talk about cancel culture. There's good parts and there's some really bad parts. And I think, um, I think parts of Canada, I think parts of U of T are leaning towards an extreme part of that culture. And I think that's leading to an environment in which people are scared of voicing their opinions freely. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also creating environments in which people don't feel like um, an open, informed debate about possibly contentious issues yeah. is allowed. Um, as soon as, let's say, if I say something contentious that people disagree with, I think that the opposing person needs to be able to understand where I'm coming from before coming to a conclusion about what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, just because I, let's say, and I don't, I don't believe this, but let's say I say that Trump has a right to build a wall in, in, in America, right? Yeah. Just because I say that, if somebody on the opposing side immediately says I'm wrong because of things other people have said compared to saying I'm wrong because of things I have said or things that I believe or any kind of logical input that I have put in place, immediately you create a closed off conversation. Yeah. Um, keep in mind, I don't, <laughs> I don't agree with Trump, yeah. um, but um, well, I agree with some parts of Trump, but not, not most of what Trump says. Fair. Um, but it's one, of, it's one of those things that having these debates about very contentious issues is really important. And I think that's something I learned from my education in the UK. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to Israel-Palestine, yeah. uh, where I am very pro-Palestine. Yeah. Uh, I've made my opinions, like, I've openly voiced my opinions on social media and with my friends. Yeah. 
but I very I, I make sure when I'm talking to people about them knowing that I see both sides yeah and that the conflict and about whatever's happening in the world is never going to be a one-sided thing and people who are trying to make it one-sided it's just going to be media it's just going to be people trying to polarize opinions absolutely media that's exactly what they're designed to do yeah and I think that I heard I don't know if I heard a quote that said the wise man in the debate never seeks to win but seeks to learn the truth so yeah like if you if you're going into a debate and it's once again it's good to try to you need to do your best to convince other people of what you believe but if you can if you're closed off to the point where you can't at least try to interpret and listen to their argument and digest it like especially if it's a new argument sure if someone's if you've heard the same argument and someone else repeats it and you have all the logic for why you can debunk that argument that's yeah. fine but i think anytime that you're listening to new ideas it's it's going to improve your arsenal of of debate right yeah. it's going to improve the the arguments that you can come into the next conversation yeah. with if you can truly aim for truth in all yeah. circumstances and sometimes even the same ideas will have entirely different logical bases behind them yeah um, true somebody might be saying the same thing again and again and ev and or or saying the same same argument that you've heard many many different times but they could have a completely different rationale why they believe that so for so for Israel Palestine just for the people that don't know yeah I don't stand on really either side of the the argument because I don't know enough about it so I'm not going to pick a side until I yeah. truly learn which we'll get into I don't even know if I feel like the majority of people who would consider themselves educated on the issue also don't know yeah because especially with government and war and yeah. these types of things where there are so many other interests involved outside of Israel and Palestine. Yeah. It's really complicated. Yeah. And it's stuff that doesn't get reported on the news because it, it's, it can't get reported on the news. It's going on in the, in yeah. the back room, right? Yeah. No one knows. It's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, but just could you like give like a brief surface layer, two minute kind of explanation of why everything's going down just for the people who don't yeah. know anything about the issue? Yeah, I think this, keep in mind, I think just as a context that I'm no historian, I'm nobody of real right. knowledge behind this. I've done my own independent research. I've seen things and I formulate my opinions based off of that. And I, I do think that there's been times that maybe I've been subject to posting things that have led to some source of misinformation unknowingly. And that happens. It's accidental. But um, I, I've just kind of seen things and done my own research and come to conclusions about those and that will formulate my opinion. But generically speaking, um, about a week ago, seven days ago, or I think now eight days ago, there was this brutal, brutal terrorist attack um, by Hamas on um, an Israeli, on Israel, uh, where they, they breached the border and they, they went across from Gaza into, into Israel. They went to a number of different villages yeah. and they just, they, they massacred civilians, they, they killed civilians. Um, to a point where I think the death toll was up to 1,300 and thousands of people were, were um, injured and they paraglided in using paragliders and they um, shot rockets. And this was like a multi-pronged offensive that was extremely organized. Um, and keep in mind that Hamas has been, has been labeled as a terrorist organization and they're a horrible entity, right? And in response to this, um, Israel uh, being a superior military power and having a very harsh line on, on, on Hamas and always taking a harsh tone on Gaza, um, 
historically um, went forward and they, and they started a bombing campaign. And I think the, the quotation was that um, Netanyahu said that we're going to turn Gaza into rubble. Um, and usually the well, majority of the Western powers provided backing for Israel, a lot of backing for Israel, um, out of self-defense. And that's understandable to an extent, right? Because a country to defend itself against a ter terrorist organization is, is, fair, is fair enough when you see it at a surface level. Um, and now what's been happening is that bombardment, that uh, blockade has lasted for since then like seven days. Um, I think it's now the figures are, uh, it's like 5,000 bombs have been dropped on Gaza. Uh, there's been a, a shortage of water, electricity, food, and medical supplies. No humanitarian aid can enter and people can't leave. And I think as of two days ago, the Israeli forces um, told 1.1 million people in the northern part of Gaza to evacuate their homes and leave everything because there's going to be a ground invasion. So it's left upwards of 1 million people without homes and it's left 3,000 people dead, as the conservative figures have said so far, because when you see a building collapse, how yeah. many people are you gonna find there in the rubble, right? So yeah. In Turkey, when you had an earthquake, that was so um, devastating a few, I think it was a few months ago, maybe six months ago, yeah. back last summer. Um, that was, that took days and days to pe for people to count bodies, but this is where buildings are falling left, right, and center. So you're never going to get an accurate estimate of how many people have actually died or actually been injured. But it's, yeah. it's a really horrible situation. And it's once one of those circumstances where once again, it's, it's the Palestinian people who have suffered the vast majority, I'd say, of the consequences of the actions of the political parties at play. Now, yes, Israelis have suffered a lot as well. You know, 1300 people is no small deal. It's yeah. a massive number of people like it's it's, it's really horrible. Um, but I do think that a question of proportionate responses is important. Yeah. Um, and I do think that the continuous bombardment, stopping of water, stopping of electricity, stopping of these things, white phosphorus, recent reports have said. Um, I know that there was this strike on a hospital and there's varying accounts as to who struck that. I have a certain opinion about it. My my Jewish friends have, have rebuttaled me about it, which is entirely fair to do, um, but at the end of the day, it's it's two million people who are under siege at the moment, and that's the really sad part of the whole thing. Absolutely, and with my stance, I think that, once again, it's easy to say this. I understand there's a, it's a very nuanced situation, but it's I think everyone needs to do their best to really be in an anti-war position. Everyone knows war is bad. Yeah. Everyone knows that in this whole context, however this situation ends, someone's going to claim victory, Israel or Palestine, but I think that's misguided. I think Israel and Palestine are both going to end up as losers in this war because that's what war is. Yeah. And so then the logical question to ask is that if they both lose, who who's the winner? And I think yeah. that there are, with war, war is very profitable. Yeah. War is very profitable. The amount of money that it costs a nation to go to war is stupendous. So yeah. who is, where's that money going? I think is a good question to ask. And I, I'm not, people are going to label a lot of this as conspiracy. I'm just trying to walk through a logical train of thought. Yeah. It costs money to go to war. Yeah. A lot of money. So where's that money going? You're going to think that those people are probably the ones who are going to win the war. It's yeah. not Israel. It's not Palestine. It's going to be the people who are nowhere near the scene 
yeah. reaping huge monetary benefits yeah. from crisis. Yeah. There's, I heard a quote that said, crisis and opportunity. Is it crisis and opportunity? Chaos. Chaos and opportunity are linked. Anytime yeah. there's chaos, there's opportunity. Yeah. You want to look at any situation. If you took 9-11, huge opportunity to, maybe, okay, I'll, I won't use that as an example. Let's take COVID. And once again, I'm not, even, I'm not even claiming any sort of political stance. I'm not trying to spread conspiracy, nothing. I'm saying that in a crisis scenario like a pandemic, yeah. there's opportunity for a pharmaceutical company to come save the day and reap benefits. But even if you look at the oil prices during COVID, yeah. they went negative. Right, <laughs> right. So somebody buys oil at a negative. So then maybe they- the money in a day. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's the whole thing that happened, like the volatility index, the, the amount of volatility that went, went down in the stock market. Right. And my dad works in banking, so he went on about this all the time. He was like, during COVID, the amount of volatility that was taking place just because of the uncertainty was yeah. insane. And that's how people made a lot of money. Yeah. True. Um, and it applies to a lot of different things. I think the added level of complexity when it comes to Israel-Palestine is um, the illegal occupation of the West Bank. Yeah. Um, because Israel, under international law, uh, is illegally occupying the West Bank, which is the region of Palestinian land. It's been called an apartheid state. Now, I'm going to be rebuttaled with this. I'm going to probably get messages with people saying, no, it's not, and, and these are the facts and figures. But in my opinion, it is. Um, and because, and that's where Hamas is using that as a pretext um, for resistance or retaliation. Now, that is a very complicated argument to make as to yeah. where, you know, is Hamas a terrorist organization or are they resistance fighters? And I think that is something which nobody can answer. I think they're terrorists because as soon as you kill civilians, you become a terrorist. Got it. But I also think that Israel's occupying forces in West Bank I also is, is performing terrorism. I do think that that is a form of terrorism. Right. I do think that, uh, you know, the the bombardment of, to that degree that's been taking place now is a form of terrorism as well. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's just very complicated. On top of that, you have America that's playing influence in it, right? Like, Always. If, yeah, like, yeah, obviously. Always. Right? You, and, the th and the funny thing is, you know, you got, and, and it, it, there's a lot of similarities. You look at 9-11, right? you had a horrible incidence of, of, of attack. My dad was there that day, so he, he knows. In New York? In New York, he was, oh, wow. he was in the building next door. He was working at, at Goldman Sachs when, when the, he saw the second plane go in. Um, so he, he, like, it was horrible. But, you know, um, 2,000 plus people died on the day of 9-11. Yeah. And over a million people died in Iraq as a result. Crazy. Right? And it's, it's Is that true? Yeah. Oh wow. The the in Iraq there's over a million people in counting that have died because of the war on Iraq. Um yeah. and that was because of weapons of mass destruction. Keep in mind that um the plane that went into the Twin Towers did not have Iraqis on it. The suicide bombers were not Iraqi. They were majority Saudi Arabian and there was a Pakistani on there. So the pretext for a war in Iraq now unanimously most people say the Iraq war should not have happened. There so were why no did it happen? Well, because of oil. Got it. Right? Iraq so then, so then wait, is this, so you say that, sorry, the, the terrorists were Saudi and Pakistan? 
Yeah. Like, is that is that confirmed fact? Is yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, no, no. Okay. That, so this is this is all historically people. people have, like, so then in the time, are you, does that mean that they were saying it was Iraq in the time? At the time, they were saying Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, and so we're okay, going to okay, go yeah, in yeah. and we're going to get rid of this regime that is a threat to the United States security. Got it, got it, got it. Right? And everybody on the bandwagon of 9-11 terrorists went forward and, and supported that. But yeah. now in the U.S., like, people have outrightly gone. Like, there was this massively viral clip of a U.S. soldier sitting in an interview or a press conference of, of yeah, which, which um, it was either, I forget, was it, I think it was uh, Bush, um, and he was doing a press conference of some kind. And um, this American soldier says, you, you killed my friends in Iraq, you killed one million Iraqis, and there were no weapons of mass destruction. Um, and it's one of those things that political powers can play people so well yeah. uh, throughout history. Um, and it's, it's, I think, I see huge correlation in the same way, like, like Israel has been calling this recent attack as the 9-11 of Israel. Right. Um, and I think that if you look back at the history of 9-11, if you look at the history of Americans, of America and what happened after 9-11, do you think that the collective punishment of all Iraqis was deserved after 9-11? The answer is no. Right. Do you think the collective punishment of people in Palestine is deserved after an attack on Israeli population? The answer is still no. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that this is, like, what would this be called? Do you think it's Israel versus Palestine or do you think it's Israel versus Hamas? That's a very difficult question yeah. because Israel is going to say it's Israel versus Hamas. Right. Palestinians are going to say it's Israel versus Palestine. Right. Uh, the arguments on both sides, I'm going to lean towards one, but the arguments are present on both sides. Right, right, right. Where Israel says that, look, Hamas attacked us, they're a terrorist group, we're trying to attack them. Palestinians are saying, well, you're not attacking them, you're indiscriminately <coughs> killing children, women, civilians. Yeah, everyone's seen the videos. There's on both sides you see the pictures in israel of the yeah. burnt charred bodies you see the video in palestine of the dad running with his little daughter yeah it's it's horrific yeah what is happening and like it's easy to get caught up in the in the phonetics of it yeah as someone who that's the thing is that i i feel like most people nowadays understand that the news lies yeah, I think because this is it's so clear to me that anything they put on the mainstream outlets, mainstream media is I'm not going to say it's a lie, whether it's a direct lie or it's a lie by omission, meaning yeah. they're negating some of the truth and they're not including some parts of the story. Yeah. Just so let's just think of nobody even knows the source of any information anymore, yeah. whether it's on the Internet or it's on the news. You get some face on CNN or Fox telling yeah. you information that a writer gave to him that a director put on the screen. The director got the information from his manager in New York and New York got his information from some guy yeah. on the ground in Israel. Maybe like it, nobody even knows where this stuff's coming from. Yeah. You just hear it from faces talking to you on a screen. So yeah. the reason that once again, I, I talk about the idea that Israel's losing and Palestine is losing. Someone has to be winning. And also the idea that there's, if, if we take the mainstream media facts as we know that there's missing information, something isn't, this isn't the complete story. Why would, why would the mainstream media, why, okay, here's a perfect example. My boss doesn't tell me the profit margins that our company makes, yeah. right? When I, when I work at a, a concrete yard, yeah. if my boss isn't going to tell me the profit margins of the, of the business, yeah. I don't know why anyone would expect the most powerful nations in the world to tell yeah. randoms 
about yeah. the truth yeah. of one of the biggest wars of, I'd say, the 21st yeah. century. Of course. So I think if, any, if you can take that as yeah. fact, you know that there's missing details. Now you yeah. need to just tie the pieces together of what's missing. Generally speaking, I like to say that if the U.S. supports a certain action, the correct thing to do is the opposite. Interesting. Okay, <laughs> so that's that's an extremely hot take. That's an extremely hot take. Sometimes, sometimes and that an American, by the way. Yeah, no, so, for sure, for sure. Um, no, sometimes yeah. I'd say sometimes that's true, but I don't know about all the time. Sometimes it might be. Yeah, might I think be false. I think ge generally I think the U.S. Um, is responsible for a lot um, that has happened in the last 50 years. If you look at the Taliban, yeah. they were created by the US because the CIA funded a small group of people. And, and it's interesting because those same people are Pathans. Like that's, and going full circle back to me and where I'm from and my culture, and those people are the same people as me. Yeah. Um, they're from the same area. We're divided by a border, but they're the same people. Yeah. Um, and they live in the middle of mountains and they are easily brainwashed. And all the Americans did was they came and said, oh, look, those Russians, they're atheists. We're <laughs> Christians. So we're people of the book. They're not. We'll give you weapons and machinery. Why don't you go kill them? Right. And they did that. And then you leave a bunch of people with weapons who have now fundamental, fundamentalistic ideas and ideologies yeah. about religion. And suddenly you're going to create a monster. Yeah. Um, and then you got the Taliban that then America went in and bombed the hell out of Afghanistan for 10 odd years and then pulled out. What was the benefit of that? The Taliban are still there. Right. Just a bunch of people died. A bunch of Americans died. Right. Uh, but everyone was like, yeah, America, go fight war. Taliban bad. And, and you just got a bunch of, so that's where my opinion about America comes in is that generally speaking, the side America's on is generally the wrong side. Interesting. Interesting take. I know that to be the most powerful country in the world, you have to cheat. Yeah. Because, I mean, every country in the world cheats. I think that every country, I'd say that the top 20 most powerful countries all are probably to a degree corrupt. Because that's yeah. what it takes to be powerful in, in this day and age. You can't follow the rules. Yeah. It's impossible. And, and there's a lot of deception that goes on. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Another interesting thing to talk about is Israel's intelligence agency, yeah. Mossad, which yeah. is apparently one of the biggest, best agencies ranked on like the top three of yeah, so yeah. many lists in the world. We're university students. This is a, it's a funny conversation <laughs> to have. Like, we don't know anything about the truth of what's going on. Like, yeah. we can do as much as much educating as we have access to. Yeah. Once again, just to remind everyone out there. Yeah. How old are you? I'm 20. I'm 20. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> you're, you're listening to two 20 year olds. This is just yeah. the opinions of exactly of college students, it university is. students. How are the, the, how's the young generation taking all this in? Exactly. Just to make that clear. Um, yeah. one of the top intelligence agencies in the world, how did they not, how did they not, I guess, see this coming? Do you ever think about that? That's something I, I do, <laughs> which is why, which is why it's ironic to me that I, I don't I don't know if I mentioned this Israel like helped fund Hamas. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, back back when the the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation um, Organization, uh, sorry, PLO is. They they were the main party at that point, right? They were the Palestinian party. It was run by Yasser Arafat, who also I think was a really 
person. But that being aside, um, there was uh, an alternative faction, which was Hamas, which was opposing um, the PLO and was being supported by Israel because obviously, you, you know, uh, political uncertainty, political divide is good for an opposing nation. Yeah. It makes sense, right? Um, and so it is documented that Israel actually funded Hamas in its initial stages, supported the building of schools and, and mosques and religious institutions for the spreading of its uh, propaganda and its, and its campaign in order to gain authority because, uh, and that's happened, we know that that's a tactic used by many powers, right? We know it's happened with America, with the Taliban, we know it happens with, America's been doing it everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. It happened with, in colonial, in colonization all the time, right? It was, it was like, um, yeah, it happened everywhere. Like pseudo pseudo governments is very common. Yeah, right? it happened in Cuba. It happened everywhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and then Hamas and a lot of Israeli um, people of government have said that Israel created a monster, and I agree. Hamas is a monster. Like Hamas the ter- is a is a terrorist organization because they kill civilians. Do the Palestinian people support Hamas? I think I think it's mixed. I think. I, I see why they would. Yeah. When you're when when the people when the people of Gaza are stuck in a blockaded, like literally walled place. It's it's known as the biggest open air prison in the world. Yeah, I've heard it called. Two, that. Yeah, yeah, right. It's it's known as two million people surrounded by walls on both sides in a sea. Yeah. The sea is covered. Also, like has Israeli warships. Yeah. Right on on that side, you know, and and you have these people living <coughs> in in a society where they can't leave, they can't. Do very much. Unemployment rate is like over fifty percent. Massive. Yeah. You're getting every few years you get bombed by Israel. Right. Yeah. The last time Gaza got bombed was a few years ago. Right. For an entirely different reason. Where what are people what are people gonna do? Like what uh, what alternative do people see? And I think when you look at it from that perspective, whenever you create environments where people see no alternative route, where people feel that politicians are never gonna look out for them, when people feel that diplomacy is never going to work the next thing people are going to go towards are either give up or find any way to resist yeah. and in their minds what is the only entity that's well, going to be resisting it's yeah, going to be hamas it's the lesser of two evils it's I guess. the lesser of two evils and yes hamas is a terrorist group because when we see it from the outside in 100 percent, they're killing civilians that's yeah. inexcusable yeah um and i think the same of what israel is doing in 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 the occupied west bank and Meant, I think the same of Israel when they indiscriminately bomb, but like when you look at it from the perspective of what 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 else do these guys see as an option? That's that's the thing. Why is it that the Taliban grew in in popularity in Afghanistan as soon as America invaded? It's because you have the Americans going in and bombing people, and due to collateral damage, you get a bunch of civilian deaths. People will see, oh, my brother's death dead my family's dead i did nothing to protect them what am i going to do i'm going to fight against these people who killed them who's fighting against them i don't care what their morals are i don't care what their ethics are but i'm going to fight with whoever killed my family right and at that point it doesn't we're human beings right we it doesn't matter who that organization is it doesn't matter how they were founded it doesn't matter what their ideals are at that point you're you're fighting out of fury anger and grief yeah um and it becomes a war of pure emotion on both sides where politicians are feeding off of that emotion, yeah. where people are angry on both sides and people are wanting to kill each other, and politicians are just there like, okay. 
It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's it's, and once again, I know. I say the best policy is anti-war, and that's easy to say. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's helpful at all to be calling for war explicitly. I think if in a perfect world, obviously, yeah. war is avoided at all costs. Absolutely. I wonder, what do you think about the idea that is peace achieved through war? Like, like th- it's been very contentious with Israel and Palestine for decades, very, yeah. very long time. Um, some consider it dating thousands of years. I don't know too much about that history, but do you think that like where where what's the solution possibly going to be here? Is it does it have to be through death? How how else is this going to get solved? Oh, that's that's just ideas, just ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, at at the moment, I I think that this is more this is more philosophical, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I just mean like yeah is peace achieved through war is it any other way possible so the answer to that yeah i'd say no peace can never be achieved through war yeah. never will be never has um if you look at all the way back to world war one yeah. right yes the germans started the whole thing um but what happened after that right you got um the um you got Germ- germany becoming extraordinarily economically deprived because of the reparations they had to pay to the west which led to a number of things which essentially led to including the great depression economically germany was horrible which led to right-wing ideology led to extremism right because obviously bad conditions and horrible times will lead to extremism leading to the nazi party leading to world war ii so another war initiated by the original war then after world war ii you got this um, is is actually leading to you could tie that together to israel-palestine yeah, because that's how that's what happens. I mean, that's like the origin, right, of Israel is that after World War Two, the Jewish people needed wanted to find a like land. Yeah. Once again, not saying any opinions on that. I'm just saying like it's all connected. It, it is, and 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 back to um, I, a lot of my Jewish friends quote the Seven Day War when when the Arab countries invaded into Israel and then Israel fought back and then won a bunch of extra land over. Like that's the same thing. More wars will never call like stop wars. Wars yeah. will never cause peace. Like. Yeah. And that's the irony of it in a sense and also a vicious cycle where yes you know you have a right to resist yes you know an eye for an eye is a thing but i also believe an eye for an eye yeah but controlling an eye for an eye is extraordinarily difficult i i agree and and that's where you get it is is no matter (coughs) how much you think that an eye for an eye is fair when you're at that stage where you're international fighting factions you're never going to be able to get an eye for an eye. Yeah. It's never going to be possible. Yes, let's say somebody kills my brother and you want to go kill that person. That might be an eye for an eye. But right. when you're looking at two, well, one military power and one terrorist organization, you're never going to get an eye for an eye. Yeah. And that's my point. It's too when complicated. I, it's way too complicated. And that's, where I, that's why I'm at this time pro-Palestinian and, and pro-Palestine because, yes, it's horrible. 1,300 people were killed. 1,300 plus people were killed in, in Israel. It's It's catastrophic but that was seven days ago it's catastrophic that um, 3,000 people in Gaza were killed that might have been yesterday but the key thing is right now as we speak there are still bombs that are going off in Gaza at this moment there are still people who are dying there's gonna be another maybe few thousand people if not more gonna die in the next week in the next month 
if Netanyahu is right and he wants to turn Gaza into rubble, he's going to displace two million people. And the reason that I am pro-Palestine is because, not because I'm anti-Semitic or anti-Israel necessarily, it's because, you know, there's an ongoing thing where one party is, is at the, like, at the, the edge of the sword or, you know, is, is under fire at the yeah, moment. Yeah. And you're, you want to stand with the people who are, who are undergoing the humanitarian crisis. Um, I see. And that's kind of where I stand on the whole thing. And, and I do agree that at some point, somebody needs to stop. Because right? after this, all you're going to do is you're going to incite more hatred. Right. And then Hamas is only going to get stronger. Right? Yeah. And Hamas is then going to grow, and it's going to fight back even more. Like this is, a, this is something that's been going on for decades. So if, if, let's say, the powers flipped, because once again, that's an interesting point you make about needing to stand with the people who who need support the most, like who are under fire. Yeah. Um, if the powers flipped, and let's say now Hamas is the, the stronger force, which I don't see that happening, but I mean like, let's say in an imaginary world, Hamas can overpower the Israeli military. Yeah. And they do. And now Israel is in the position that Palestine is in now. Yeah. Would you stand with Israel in that scenario? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. If... Israelis were dying today yeah. because of, like, if Israelis were dying more than Palestinians right now, yeah. if Israel was the one that had had its borders blockaded off, if Israel was the one that didn't have water or food or electricity or, or humanitarian yeah. aid or fuel or medicine, 100%, absolutely. So, yeah, you say, like, uh, you say you're pro-Palestine, but I, I understand just, like, the logic of, I don't even think it has anything to do with Israel-Palestine. I think if you said country A, country B, here are the circumstances, you would just yeah. you'd still go with yeah. Palestine or country B, whatever you want to yeah, call it. Exactly. It's interesting to talk it, about. It's and I think the reason why this becomes so much more complicated again is because of the layers to it. And it, it's yeah. very it's very easy to just look at a surface level and just say, This is what's happening right now. There is so much history, so this is a conflict that's been going Absolutely. on for decades and, and decades. Yeah. That's why in high school, I think I talked about more politics than I do in university, which is strange. I feel like people tend to talk about politics more often as they age, but I've kind of veered off from that just because as I get older, I start to understand how much of a tangled mess all of this stuff is. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, that's the thing is I try not to express any serious opinions about which side is right Yeah. because to be truly educated, you need to you need to know a lot. Yeah. Two hours on a YouTube video is not enough. No. Two weeks reading is still not enough. You need yeah. years of knowledge that you acquire. And it's it's very yeah, it's very dodgy. Another thing, yeah. this is another thing I was thinking about is why why was I thinking about this? Oh, with uh as I was talking about the media, I think that there's an interesting philosophical idea I was pondering the other day, which was that I believe that all knowledge, knowledge is never learnt, sorry, knowledge is rarely learnt and usually believed. So what I mean by that is people educate themselves. Sorry, let's just, okay, still a full battery there. Just making sure. Um, people educate themselves, people will read, people will do research, watch videos, video evidence, whatever it is. Yeah. I consider that knowledge through belief, not all knowledge through real acquisition. I think that 
Yeah, just the majority. Let's let's take. I just finished a book on evolution. Okay. Great book. Great. I book. love talking about evolution. Evolution's awesome. Yeah. And I have an interesting take on that. I completely believe in evolution. Yeah. I don't think that it disproves God, but okay. I do believe in evolution. So there's my interesting take. Okay. But as I read this book, yes, they show me all of the fossil records. Yeah. They give sound logical points of why evolution can be true. Yeah. They show graphs. They show numbers, stats, all of this stuff. Yeah. Plenty, plenty of examples, which has led me to believe in evolution. I don't think that that is enough to tell me I know evolution. I'm not, once again, I'm not, here's a, it's a funny example. I'm not God. I didn't yeah. actually visualize the evolution. I didn't see the evolution. I'm looking at evidence and I'm taking the evidence in, into consideration. And I say, I believe in this. Yeah. We believe that the earth rotates around the sun. We believe yeah. that the earth is round. Yeah. No one's ever, me and you have never gone out to space to see if the earth is round. Yeah. We believe this stuff. Yeah. So it's, you can't, knowledge, you can't actually know these things. Most of yeah. knowledge is belief. It's not actual yeah. knowledge. It goes back to the philosophical discussion of what is objectivity. We had this, this discussion uh, in Vic 1 about what is objectivity, what is scientific objectivity. Um, you know, uh, the concept that we come up with hypotheses and inherently that makes our experiments biased, right? Because we're trying to prove something that we're predicting. Um, and inherently what that means is that you can never really get objectivity. There's no such thing as yeah. absolute objectivity. The same way there's no such thing as absolute truth. Because you can, and if you think of truth as a, absolute truth as a black box, you can understand as much as you want about the black box, but you're never gonna really see inside of it. It's the same concept. Um, you can, through science, through our five senses, through whatever kind of evidence we can provide ourselves with, we can convince ourselves and we can um, use that evidence to come up with logical hypotheses or logical inferences. Yeah. But the reality is we're never going to know if the table over there is flat or if the, or the couch you're sitting on is purple. Or yeah. That's just the figment of what we're seeing and um, the neurons that are, that are firing at this exact moment that tells us that this couch is purple. Or when we touch the table, we see that it's flat. Those are sensory inputs. It doesn't mean it's absolute truth. It just means based off of the evidence we provided, yeah. that for us is truth. Yeah. So there's a key distinction between what's truth for us and what's absolute truth. Yeah. And making that distinction is basically, as long as you're a human being, you're always going to be um, inherently at risk of making miscalculations, inherently at risk of not being right. Yeah. Uh, no matter how right you think you could be, you're never going to be like 100% right. The same way that people thought that the sun revolved around the earth and were convinced about this for years, right? And then Copernicus came up and said, no, actually, everything revolves around the sun. Crazy. Um, and the same way that, like, through, uh, throughout scientific history, people have gone and said, no, you're wrong. And I think that's the beauty of it, is what's the fun in knowing absolute truth? Yeah, yeah, like, true. It's, it's pointless, and it's there'd be boring. There'd be no... There'd be no conversation. There'd be no yeah, debate. It's, it's just boring. everyone would just have. Yeah, yeah it's just all and facts. It's just horrible. Like, it's crazy. I don't want to know if this table's flat. Yeah. <laughs> like I seems pretty flat to me, but <laughs> who knows? I know. I I like I I'd prefer convincing myself that it's flat by looking at it or feeling it, feeling yeah. it, compared to just oh yeah, table, it's flat. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um. So yeah. Been a very good conversation. I would love to continue this. Yeah. The cameras are at nine percent battery. Yeah. So 
there was a few other things. We'll wrap up with just one um, one last conversation. I wanted to even read the the letter that the president sent out about right. um, about Israel, Hamas. Last last thing I just want to talk about is misinformation. Okay. I am very interested in this key term that's been very very used since COVID. I think. Okay. You hear it way more often. Misinformation. Misinformation. And not to say that lies don't exist. I just went on about how I don't think media tells the complete truth. But I don't like that term. I don't like the term misinformation because it implies that you need to take someone's, someone's as we just said, non-objective opinions and beliefs as fact. So yeah. when we say misinformation, who's the arbiter of truth? If you can yeah. say this is informa- misinformation, why, why does your version of truth, as we just were talking about, why does yeah. that, I guess, supersede someone else's? Yeah, and I, th- I absolutely agree. And I also think, why do you think that, you know, whatever that person is saying should be taken by other people as truth in the first place? So why do you think you need to necessarily rebuttal it as misinformation? Yeah. Because inherently, if you're saying, if you're saying, okay, we need to tag this post as misinformation, you're inherently saying that person thinks of this as, as truth and therefore people will be convinced by this. Yeah. And therefore I need to say, no, that's wrong because my truth is better than yours. The reality is neither of you know what the truth is. Exactly. Um, I do think that misinformation with COVID was important um, in, terms of, in terms of, I think it was important to identify misinformation because when it comes to, um, when it comes to things like healthcare and like, like people, at, at the beginning of COVID, just said it didn't exist. Right, right. Um, and so I think that can be dangerous because what that means is when it comes to virology, e- when you don't think something exists, you in- inherently become um, a vector for that disease. Right. Right. And that's dangerous when it comes to virology because then you can spread it to however many other people. I think with COVID, it was like three or four people, right? And that's right. where misinformation becomes dangerous because now you have people who don't want to wear masks and this and that. Even with COVID, though, is that, yeah, obviously saying that it doesn't exist as a disease itself is ridiculous. But there were other things that were being labeled as misinformation that seemed more just ideological or political disagreements. Yeah, and that's where where you have to draw a line. Like, misinformation, it's fine as tagging it as misinformation, as long as that is an important um, label. Like... Best thing that how do you decide that? But that's the thing is yeah exactly how do you decide now? Um, I do have the opinion that when it comes to um, scientific, I do think that science as a whole, as a scientist myself, I do think science is probably the closest we get to what we can think of as truth. Fair, right? When it comes to trying to when it comes to historically reviewing sources and all this and that that's much more complicated but when we come to science i do think that's the closest we're going to get to truth and when scientific sources that have been peer-reviewed and that have been gone have gone through sequential reviews from multiple different people who are have been studying the concept and the and the literature for years and years and years are saying that something is the closest we're going to get to truth then i think you trying to rebuttal it with an opinion is is problematic interesting Um, but that being said, I do think that um, unanimously labeling everything as misinformation is in itself problematic. It's again a continuum, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a balance between the two. Yes, saying that I'm not going to wear a mask during COVID is problematic because you're going to spread it to other people. 
but a person having an opinion about taking a vaccine, maybe not the first one. The first one I think was important because you know that was a point in time when we had to limit the rate of the spread of the, of the virus. But a person saying maybe I don't want to take the third booster or the fourth booster. Fair enough. Like that, that's yeah, even this like, and I'm not saying I disagree. I'm saying yeah. that even this is somewhat opinion oriented. Yeah. Because just once again, just I, I'm thinking that you're saying that the, the public health of the nation is more important than than your individual, I guess, decision to not want to take a vaccine, which is mm. a fair assessment. Yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to say that you're wrong for thinking that. I'm just yeah. saying that it's it's opinion. Yeah. So how do you say that, like, if someone doesn't want to take the vaccine and you think that it's better for them to take the vaccine, it's, it's more just like... Yeah, it's a difference of yeah, where your beliefs is, it lie. It is a difference of belief. I I do think, um, it, it's very it's again comp it's complicated, right? It's, it, it's it, it super takes, philosophical. It's super philosophical, and it takes much more than two twenty-year-olds just talking about absolutely it, right? with a dying <laughs> camera. <laughs> with a dying camera. Yeah. But and obviously that is a great caveat. I do think that when a country is in an emergency state where you have an a, a pandemic spreading throughout, I do think that. Uh, making collective decisions for a population can be important because the way that vaccines work is the vast majority of people have to be immunized in order for it to be effective. Right. And we saw that with COVID, right? right? As soon as you hit a 90% vaccination rate, COVID died. Um, or it was like 90, 95%, or, and then it was a second booster of 60%, and then COVID started weaning off. Uh, but I, I think as soon as you're out of that emergency state, I think then you really need to think about why you're forcing people to do certain things. Like I do think that uh, when it came to universities in Canada requiring um, like the boosters or like the third boosters, or yeah, yeah, there, were, there was yeah. all this kind of stuff. I I think that was excessive. Yeah, that's yeah, fair. And yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting to talk about, and yeah. it's uh, philosophical. It's I still think yeah, it is kind of interesting just to see where different people's priorities yeah. lie. It's a little mind warping. It's like where do you and it's one of those things where you draw the line, and it applies yeah. to everything, right? Because it's the debate between quantification and qualification like what's a what's a um um sorry there's, there's a quantifiable yeah um like variable and you can alternatively just uh, associate like um for example if you look at colors right you can you can look at red green purple blue that's a um association of particular color right but yeah. if you want to quantify that color you're going to look at the specific bandwidth Right, right, of that right. particular color. Yeah, so yeah. the question is, when it comes to science as well, how do you provide a a um, a limit and a statistical limit on like where do we draw boundaries? And that's where statistics comes in, right? Well, we'll leave yeah. the audience to think about that one. Yeah, Israel, Hamas covered that. Covered uh, some good cultural conversation at the start. Yeah. Talked about squash. If you want to join that, yeah. make sure to hit it up. <laughs> Ended with COVID every, all over every, the place. Every every Thursday. There you go. 5 to 7 p.m. What's the account? Uh, it's at UTSG Squash, I believe. There you, there go. you go. Hit it up. Thank you for coming Thank on. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Great pleasure. episode. This might be the longest episode of all time. Oh, really? So you might hold that record. Oh, wow. It's been a great conversation, though. Yeah. It's been awesome. Awesome. Everybody, thank you for watching. VOV Podcast. Follow on Instagram at Voices of Vic. Subscribe to the channel for more of these interviews. we got some, some interesting projects coming up. Yashar, great guest, holds the record for longest episode on the, uh, on the show, which is incredible. Once again, thank you, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Check out Squash and um, 
yeah, subscribe to the channel. Like the video, like the interview. It was great. And we will see you next Sunday, every Sunday, the VOV podcast. All right. Awesome. See you guys later. Peace out.